uh, I want to detour to a different subject. In Ephesians 2 and verse 2, it says, well, not 2, chapter 2, verse 19, excuse me. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Having been called out of the world, we're not strangers anymore, but we belong to the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the apostles themselves, who were appointed as the New Testament ministry, and of the prophets who laid the foundation for the New Covenant and the New Testament. Uh, Emmanuel himself being the chief corner stone. So we're part of the foundation as part of the church, and Christ, of course, is the first in place, the chief cornerstone from which everything else comes, in whom all the building fitly framed together uh, grows to you a holy temple in the eternal. So within us, we are the temple of God. It says in verse 22, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, he doesn't come and dwell in us uh, as an individual, let's say. He's on his throne in heaven. But in spirit, he comes and dwells in our minds, a habitation of God, a house of God. And all through the New Testament, it is emphasized that there is a spiritual temple, uh, that Christ dwells in us, and that his mind is to be in us. So there is no doubt that there is to be a spiritual temple. It's already been established in each of our minds and hearts when we are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And our names are placed in the book of life. So there is no question there is to be a spiritual temple uh, throughout the New Testament of God from Christ on, from the time he was here physically on. Now, let's ask a question, then. Does there really have to be a physical temple? We've addressed this in the past, at least to some degree. But uh, let's look at the whole picture today, or at least get started into it. I think I've bit off more than I can chew in an hour, hour and 15 minutes, so it may take two weeks. But uh, do we really need a physical temple? And if we do... Why are we not now building it? Why isn't it happening? Why are we sitting here? Why aren't we busy doing it if it has to be done? Now, an argument against having a physical temple here in this end time uh, is made that God does not dwell in a temple made by hands. Let's examine, first of all today, those scriptures which are used perhaps not all of them all the time, but are certainly referred to. And let's begin in Mark 14. Mark 14. Uh, here I, I want about verse 58 or thereabouts. Uh, 
there arose certain and fifty-seven and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witnesses agree together. Now Christ himself did say, we know in Matthew 24, 1 and 2, that uh, the physical temple that they were sitting at when the disciples came and asked him would be destroyed. <clears throat> and uh, here he's talking about his temple made with hands. He was a human being. Uh, he's not talking to a, about a physical temple in this particular reference, but his own body. Uh, so, he was the temple of God. God dwelt in him, just as we read in Ephesians 2, that God will dwell in us. And that it would be destroyed, and within three days, he'll make another temple made without hands. So, he himself died, and that physical temple he was dwelling in uh, was destroyed. And then he was resurrected by spirit by the Father, and was made without the hand of man. So, uh, clearly, he was showing that we are physical, and that we have Christ or God dwelling in us, but then we will be changed uh, and become as he is, totally spirit. So there was a change made there in three days from the time he died until he was resurrected. So there's a, our bodies are referred to as a physical dwelling place of God, dwelt in by His Spirit through our minds, but we ourselves. Now let's go to Acts 5. This one isn't particularly used, but Acts is. Let's go to Acts 5. Or no, 7 is what I want, I'm sorry. I'll get in gear here, I hope, after a while. Acts 7, uh, let's go down to verse 46, uh, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Now, here it says that Solomon built a house for God. He was looking for a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. Now, in 48 is an interesting statement. Howbeit, the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands. As says the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, says the Eternal, or what is the place of my rest? So he makes a statement here that Solomon built a house for God, but he doesn't really dwell in a house built with hands, Solomon's hands. Now, did he dwell there? Let's ask that question, and we'll get to it later. Let's go on down here and get a little better fix on the context of what is being uh, established. Verse 50, Has not my hand made all these things? Now, he made the heavens and the earth, as has been referred to in verse 49. So, he made it all. How can we make something for him better than anything he's already made? Well, obviously, that can't be done. Anything we build on this earth with our hands 
cannot even begin to compare with that universe out there and with this earthly orb that we dwell upon. He is surpassed by any measure anything that we might possibly begin to do. But what's the point here? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, do you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. The point he's making here is that he is far above us, and any temple made by hands is not really his dwelling place. His dwelling place is up on his throne in the sides of the north, and he says the earth is his footstool. Great imagery. It shows how much greater, how much bigger he is than that which he has created. Now, I don't know how big he is physically. I'm sure his feet don't stretch clear to the earth. That would be pretty long legs. But it's imagery. The earth is, to him, a footstool compared with the whole universe that he has made. (coughs) But the point here is about how we resist God's Spirit and Him dwelling in us and resist obeying Him and serving Him (coughs) even as our fathers did. Now let's go back and read what uh, is being referred to here by Luke. (coughs) It's in Isaiah 66 when he says the prophet said. (coughs) Here I've strained my voice a little bit just starting out. Isaiah 66. (coughs) Verse 1 now. Thus says the Eternal, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, just as Luke quoted. Where is the house that you build to me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things has my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Eternal. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. So here in the context, Isaiah is saying, at the direction of God, that he made the heavens and the earth. There's nothing like it. And anything that we can do on this earth does not even begin to compare with what God has done. So, whether we build a temple, whether we build an altar, whatever we build on this earth does not compare. But what does God look to? He looks to holy, righteous character that we might build. He looks to love and uh, joy and peace and the things of the Spirit of God is, and humility and meekness and someone who trembles at his word. Now that fits in, does it not, with a spiritual temple. If God dwells within us and his spirit motivates us, then we have the attitudes and the mind and the approach of God. We're not filled with hate and bitterness and anger and animosity and all those carnal things. We're filled with the mind of God, of mercy, kindness, forgiveness, 
those things that are part of his character as opposed to the other. So he's not saying here that there is no such thing as a physical temple. He is saying that isn't what he looks at. <clears throat> that isn't the most important thing. Now, is a spiritual temple more important than any physical temple? Absolutely. And that's what Isaiah is saying here, that that is the most important thing, is that we be a habitation of the Spirit of God, just as Ephesians 2, 20 and 22 indicate. So there's no question that the spiritual temple is by far more important than any physical that has ever been built or shall be. Let's go again to the book of Acts, uh, and here to chapter 17. Acts 17. Let's go to verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein. Here again he uses that same analogy of comparing the heavens and the earth. All the creation of God in terms of a physical. Seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things, and has made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So what he's saying is God inhabits the entire universe. We cannot limit him. We cannot limit him to a physical temple that we might build or that anyone has ever built. God is not in any way limited to that. He inhabits the entire universe. His spirit is the building block of the entire universe. So if somebody wants to build a physical temple and say, this is the place God lives, he doesn't live anywhere else, this is what's important, we found out now in the context in at least three different places that God says, no, I did the whole thing. I created everything. And you're not going to limit me to a temple made with hands. Now, he also goes on to say, neither is he worshipped with men's hands. So our hands don't worship God in terms of what we might build or make. The worship of God has to do with our mind, <clears throat> with the spirit in man. Now, do we lift our hands to God in prayer at times? Yes, we do. Is that a part of that form of worship? Yes, it is. But it isn't the hands and what the hands do that are important. <clears throat> Let's understand the context of these scriptures that the spiritual is far more important than any physical. That's what he's pointing out. You cannot limit God to a place that you might build or anything your hands might do. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Let's 
starting in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, if we physically die, we have a building of God. What he's building in our minds, not our bodies. Now, our bodies are to be clean. Uh, They're to reflect God's way. We're not to sin physically. But the Spirit dwells in the mind, not in the finger or the toenail. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's saying that that which he is building within our minds and our hearts is not something that is made by man, but it's planted there, grows there, develops there, uh, in the heavens from God. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. So our house, our house, our eternal house, our spiritual house is coming down from heaven. Didn't Christ tell the disciples, uh, in my Father's house are many mansions, habitations, houses, dwellings, and that they will come, and they're being made for you. So he is developing our character and our spiritual uh, being so that we might be clothed and not found naked. So he uses clothing and house interchangeably here (coughs) to indicate the future. So there's no doubt that there is a spiritual house being built, and that is the most important thing by far. Now let's go to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. I'm making a pretty good case here for a spiritual temple, am I not? I think so. These scriptures all talk about the spiritual temple, and not one made with hands as the important thing. Hebrews 9, uh, verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Speaking of the physical animal sacrifices and the things which were done under the law of Moses. That there has to be something greater than those. So verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Now let me ask a question right there at the end of that phrase. Were there physical places made in the Old Testament that Christ entered into? Hold that as a question into your mind. Because right here it says, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Doesn't it? Now I'm going to show you some scriptures that show that he did enter into those places made with hands. Is this a contradiction? Does the scripture agree with itself or does it not? Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. We've read several scriptures which say that he entered not into 
house made with hands. Here it says he didn't enter into those holy places made with hands. Now, when we read those that say he did, what's the answer to this? It's right here in the context. He says, those things are figures or types or looking forward to the true, the eternal, the best, the finest, the temple of God, described in Revelation 21, when the Father and the Son come down uh, with the holy city, and they are the temple of it, and they dwell there forever and ever. That's the holy, the eternal, and the true spiritual temple. And the 144,000 bride of Christ will dwell there with them in that temple. Because we will be like them. So he's not really saying here that Christ never entered into those. He's saying that isn't the point. That which is physical is going to be superseded by that which is spiritual. Because I can show you in Scripture that he did come to and dwell in and live in physical temples made with men's hands. I'm going to show you those scriptures. So, there has to be an answer. Otherwise, this is an absolute contradiction in the scripture. And the answer has to be that there is type from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to the New. That God used the physical back men to picture the spiritual which was to be. So now, those are the ones that say that God doesn't dwell in a temple made by hands. Now let's go and look at the other side of this coin and see if we can come up then with the correct understanding. Go back to uh, Exodus 28. Exodus 28. And here let's go to... uh, Well, here he's he's been describing the tabernacle that was to be built, and he is the one who said that that tabernacle was to be built. And he goes through the details of it, the pattern of it, and all that, And then down here in uh, verse 35. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goes in to the holy place before the eternal, and when he comes out, that he die not. And you shall make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the eternal. So, here was a place that was going to be a holy place. Holiness to the eternal. And that he would have that on his forehead. So, the holiness of God was going to be involved in this. Now, let's go to chapter 29. And... uh, 
Verse 41, And the other lamb you shall offer at even, and you shall do therefore according to the meal offering of the morning, and according to the drink offering thereof, for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire to the eternal. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the eternal, where I will meet you to speak there to you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So he was going to be in the tabernacle. It was going to be sanctified or set aside by the glory of God. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. Now, was he in it? The glory of God was there. I will sanctify them. The congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister unto me. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. <clears throat> now, he's talked about this holy place that would have his glory in it. And he said he would dwell with them. Now, where did he stay when he came to dwell with them? Under a sagebrush somewhere? Under a pinion pine? Where did he stay when he came to dwell with them? I expect he stayed right there in the place where it says it was sanctified by his glory. He had it built as to have a place of holiness that the priest could only come into once a year because the presence of God was there. And they could not come into the presence of God but once having been completely purified, cleansed, their clean clothing, well, the, the holy garments had to be worn by the high priest only, and he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, because it was the dwelling place of God. So Christ did enter into that tabernacle, which was built to be the center of worship for the nation of Israel. Uh, look at chapter 40. And uh, verse 34. <clears throat> chapter 40, verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Eternal filled the tabernacle. Now you'll remember... Well, let's read on a little bit, though, first. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Eternal filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. <clears throat> but if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Eternal was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the houses of Israel throughout all their journeys. Is it any wonder that in Acts 2, when Christ appeared as a flame of fire before the disciples, after you read the history here and the pattern of what God did with His glory at the tabernacle, and then He had flames of cloven flames of fire, there in Acts when the New Testament church began. So he was there. <clears throat> now, did he come and go? 
Yeah. He lifted the fire or the cloud, and they could move. But when he was there, they stayed put. And they stayed put quite a bit. They didn't, weren't always moving. Now, did he stay there? Did he give up his dwelling in heaven? No. But Christ himself came down. The Father didn't, but Christ did. He was the God of the Old Testament in that sense. So, uh, he came, and his glory filled it. Now let's go to Second Chronicles 29. Second Chronicles 29. All right. Verse four. Well, let's see. Uh, let's let's begin in the, the beginning. Hezekiah began to reign when he was twenty-five years old, and so on. And he did right in the sight of the Eternal. And in verse three, he put he in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Eternal and repaired him them. Now he calls here this temple the doors of the house of the Eternal. If God did not dwell there, why was it called His house? Okay? It's the house of God. House where God... Where, where do you dwell? Under a sage bush? Or do you dwell in your house? If you have a house, that's where you live. God had a house, that's where He stayed. It's His house. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street and said to them, <clears throat> Hear me, you Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the eternal God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. So they were to cleanse the temple. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the eternal our God and have forsaken him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the eternal, and turned their backs. Here it not only says it's his house, but it says it is his habitation. A habitation is what? It's where you dwell. So did he dwell in a house made with hands? Well, it's his dwelling, it's his house, and it was inhabited by him. Now, is that a direct contradiction of what we read in the New Testament? Or do those have to somehow then fit together? They have shut up the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. So he was angry with Judah in Jerusalem, and he has delivered them to trouble, to astonishment and to hissing, as you see with your eyes. I don't see how you could put it any plainer or any clearer than what is written right here in Second Chronicles. That it was a house made for God, it was a house that he then did inhabit it. Not just a house made that he didn't stay in, if some might say, you can build a house for God, but he won't stay in it. 
based on Acts 7 and 17. But here it says he did inhabit it. He stayed in it. 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8. Uh, let's see, let's go down to about verse 11. Well, verse 10. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the eternal. Again, calls it his house. The house of God is mentioned 90 times in the Bible. The house of God. And it's generally referring to the tabernacle or a temple made with hands. Uh, Anyway, and they drew out, verse 8, staves, that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without, and there they are unto this day. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Eternal made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Mitzrayim. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Eternal, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Eternal had filled the house of the Eternal. He was there. His glory was there. And it was his house. Then spoke Solomon, The Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built you a house to dwell in, a settled place for you to bide in forever. Now Solomon thought that that temple would always be. But he blessed the congregation and so on, and said that he had built a house for God, and God's glory filled it. So he inhabited it, just as he had the tabernacle in the wilderness. Uh Go to chapter, no, let's not go there yet. Let's go to Ezra uh, chapter, can't read my own writing, Ezra 9. Here in verse 8, And now for a little space... Grace has been showed from the eternal our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God has not forsaken us in our bondage, but has extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. So God had them rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. When they came out of captivity, they went and built it and he gave them a place to escape to and it is his holy place. Gave them a place to hang their hats, a nail in his holy place. And it is called his house. Notice chapter 5, verse 8. 
Be it known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is builded with great stones, and timber is laid in the walls, and this work goes fast on and prospers in their hands. So the house of God here was being built with stones and timbers. Keep that in mind when we get to the book of Haggai, where he says to go to the mountains and get wood and build my house. And who is he talking to when he says that in Haggai 1? We'll get there. But this ties together with that. And let's not forget that when we arrive there. <clears throat> now, let's go to Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 10. Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel is, in, in his book, especially chapters 40 through 48, is talking about building a temple. But here in chapter 10, uh, let's pick it up in verse 1. Or is that what I want? Yeah. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them as it were a sapphire stone, and the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spoke to the man clothed with the linen and said, Go between the wheels and so on. Go over the city. And they went to the right side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Eternal went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. Now this, in Ezekiel 10, is a prophecy for the end time. The whole book of Ezekiel is a prophecy, and it's for now. So here is a time when God's glory is brought in to a house, a house of God. It's not talking about the millennium. Uh, that's when the Father and the Son both come down and are the light of the temple in Revelation 21, as to which I already referred. Now let's go on to Ezekiel uh, 43. He starts in chapter 40 describing the temple that is to be built. Now, Ezekiel's temple has never been built. Solomon's temple had different, a different configuration. Every temple that was ever built uh, had different measurements and everything uh, different than this temple here of Ezekiel. It is something that has never been attempted or ever built in the history of mankind. Now, it won't be needed in the world tomorrow because the temple will be a spiritual thing. Uh, as I said, and the Father and the Son will be there and will dwell with them in that temple, that city of, of the, of the uh, heavenly Jerusalem. So that's a different thing. Now here, let's pick it up in verse 4. Uh, well, let's go to verse 2 first. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. So here's a temple being built, a physical temple, and it has to be here in the end time. And the glory of God is coming to it from the east, east of the 
original temple in Jerusalem was the Mount of Olives. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw. So we read about his vision in chapter 10 when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I fell, saw by the river Kebar and fell upon my face. So it's comparing it to what we saw there in chapter 10. And the glory of the Eternal came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect or, or faces the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Eternal filled the house. And I heard him speaking to me out of the house. So he was in the house. And the man stood by me, and he said to me, Son of man, the place of my throne, and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defiled." Neither they, nor their kings by their whoredom, nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places. So whatever this is, and whenever it is, he will dwell there, and they will not come uh, and defile it physically speaking. So is it end of the age, or is it millennium? I guess we'll have to see. But uh, nevertheless, he was there and filled it with his glory. Go to chapter 44, verse 4. Then brought he me the way of the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Eternal filled the house of the Eternal, and I fell upon my face. So this was a physical building. You go back and you can read all the dimensions and the building materials used. So whether it's here at the end or whether it's the beginning of the millennium, uh, is neither here nor there. It is physical. And he was there, and he dwelt within it. So, does he dwell in a house made with hands? Yes, he has. Will he again? Well, you read Ezekiel here, looks like he will. Whether it's end of the age or millennial, in that sense, doesn't matter. Uh, it's a physical building that he dwells in, made by men's hands. The heavenly Jerusalem is not made by men's hands, but this one is. Gives up how to do it, what to do. So it's physical. Well, I think if you put all those scriptures together, you can see that Christ has lived in dwellings made by hands. So then how do you put this together? <clears throat> the obvious emphasis in those first scriptures we read were that God is greater than anything, and He dwells in the entire universe, and the earth is merely His footstool, and He cannot be confined to a house made with hands that is not His primary dwelling place. We can't do something greater than God has done. That's the whole point being made, is that God is greater than anything we may, might do and his dwelling place is the universe. Now, can he come and dwell part-time in a house made with hands that pictures that which will be eternal? And Paul made that a very plain statement, that those houses he dwelt in, in the Old Testament, and will, I think, in the New, were only a type or a picture of the eternal 
universal house that God has always lived in and will dwell in on the earth in when it comes down from the vastness of the universe. That's the only explanation you could have. Otherwise, these, all these scriptures simply contradict each other completely. See what I mean? Yes, he's dwelt in houses made by hands. It was his habitation, and he dwelt there, we read, in Chronicles and all these other places. Now, let's continue the thought just a little more. Let's go to Haggai. And see what he says here in the end time. Book of Haggai. Uh, here he comes to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. And he says, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, This people say the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now this is an end time prophecy. It's talking about the two witnesses who are uh, pictured here by uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. These are the two anointed ones, Zechariah 4.14 of Revelation 11. The only two places the sons of oil or the two anointed ones are mentioned in the whole Bible uh, in that connection. Now, they're mentioned throughout the prophecies, but by name and by definition, those two scriptures are the only two places. So it's talking about the two witnesses at the end. And that people will say, at the end time, when the two witnesses are there to be observed, this people will say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, I've made the point several times in the past, that there's no one in the church of God, the spiritual church, that we read about in Ephesians 2, verses 20 through 22, that spiritual temple... There is no one I can think of or can imagine in the church of God in the end time who would say it is not time to build a spiritual temple. Everyone, I think, agrees on that. If you don't agree on that, you're not a Christian of any kind. Because the obvious emphasis throughout is the spiritual temple. That temple built in our minds via the dwelling in of the Spirit of God. That's the most important there is. And it is that temple that will be raised to spirit level, even as Christ, whose physical body died and was resurrected three days later, became spirit. We will as well. So there's no question that the, whole, that the spiritual temple has to be built now. It was during the days of the apostles. It is today. So... Have you ever met anyone who said it isn't time to build a spiritual temple? I haven't. Have I ever met anyone that says it's not time to build a physical temple? Oh, yeah. No problem there. So, this has to be referring to a physical temple. It can't be anything else. Because it says that the people in the end time who are coming to Joshua and Zerubbabel, will say it isn't time to build a temple. The whole church of God says, in its scattered form, 
it's not time for us to build a physical temple. They will say the Jews are going to build one. I think most of them agree on that. But what the Jews build is not the temple of God. God has divorced the Jews for the time being. Maybe divorced isn't the right word. Well, he did divorce Israel, but in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. But he told the Pharisees in the New Testament that he would have nothing more to do with them until they accepted the apostles that he sent. His New Testament ministry. So in effect, he was disfellowshipping them at that point. Maybe that's a better word to use than divorcing. He disfellowshipped them and said, I have no fellowship with you till then. So, that hasn't changed. They have not accepted Christ or his apostles or his end-time ministry. A few are Messianic Jews, but uh, they're just Protestants. And the Protestants worship they know not what, just like they did in the days of Christ. They worship Satan the devil and don't even know it. So, Satan worshipers are not going to build the temple of God. It can't be done. God would not be with it, and he certainly would not dwell in a temple built by the Jews. His presence would not be there. That's very, very clear what he thought of the Jews, the human, physical Jews. So he says, this people will say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Can't be the spiritual. I don't know how to emphasize that anymore has to be a physical, because that's the only one you and I have heard people say shouldn't be built. Then came the word of the Eternal. So this isn't Daryl's word or Haggai's word. It's this God's word came to these people. And he says, Is it time for you to dwell in your fine homes and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways. Think about your lives. Now, when he said he didn't dwell in a house made with hands, he's saying human physical beings cannot build a house that is worthy of me dwelling in. To this man will I look, to him who has a contrite and humble spirit. That's the one he will dwell in. And that's the ones he will use to build his physical temple because there is a purpose for that temple here in the end time. So considering your ways and having the right attitude is the first key. You have so much and brought in little. Now that could be physically, but it's speaking primarily spiritually, I think, here. Herbert Armstrong worked hard, he sowed much, but now that it's all said and done, not much has been brought in, at least not that lasted. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. Are we in a time of spiritual famine? Yes, we are, just as Amos said we would be. You clothe you, but there is none warm. So we try to put on spiritual garments and be warm and cozy spiritually but we don't seem to have the contact with God that we ought to have. He's not blessing us in the ways that he used to or will. He that earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. So this could be physical and spiritual. Uh, 
there's no prosperity either way. We're in a time of a terrible economy, or one that's going to get really worse and going to crash, just as the church has crashed. So it can be physical and spiritual both in terms of the conditions. So he says, again, the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It's time to build my house. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Now that's what they did in Ezra's day, as we read. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. So his glory is going to come to that house. Now, let's go to Zechariah 2 for a moment. He says Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, and he says to flee. And in verse 7 of Zechariah 2, he says, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. The Amplified Version says, Flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, After the glory which he has sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Now, he's going to shake his hand. Hold your finger there a moment. Go back to the end of Zechariah. Or not the end. Here it is in verse, chapter 2, verse 6. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. So the house that is to be built here, which is a physical temple, has to be, because that's the one they say won't be built, and he says, yes, it will. He is going to come at the time of the end, almost at the day of the Lord, at the time when he begins to shake the earth. That's end time, isn't it? He hasn't done that yet. It's about to happen. That's when he is going to fill that house with glory. Uh, verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen and overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them and the horses and the riders shall come down, every one, by the sword of his brother. Is that an end-time prophecy or not? Is Haggai talking about the end, or is he talking about the days of Ezra and Nehemiah? That didn't happen in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when they built the temple, rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. It didn't happen at all. This is an end-time, day-of-the-Lord type prophecy. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, will I take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Eternal, and will make you as a signet, for I have chosen you, says the Eternal of hosts. So God is going to set Zerubbabel as a banner, a signet, a flag of his house to let the whole kingdoms of the world know that he is God. Now, is that the job of the two witnesses in, Hebrew, in uh, Revelation 11? Yes, it is. 
as a signet of God, as a banner, as a witness of God to all nations. So this is a time then, at the end, when God is going to have a physical house built and he will put his glory in it. Now let's go back to Zechariah 2. Here again he's saying in verse 9 that he will do his shaking. Go to verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Now these are the physical temple, the physical people who just fled from Babylon, right? To Zion. And he calls them the daughters of Zion. For lo, I will I come and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. He is going to come and dwell in the midst of his holy people, his remnant church, in the end time, at the time that uh, the nations are shaken. Now, where will he dwell? Will he dwell under a sagebrush again? Now, he says in the middle of you, in the midst of his people. Now, if you look at a diagram of the Holy Land given out by Ezekiel or even in Joshua's day, where was the center of the promised land? Jerusalem. It's where you counted every direction from. He will dwell at Jerusalem and in the temple of God. And if he dwells in the midst of them, that means he's at Jerusalem, the original Jerusalem, which will be built in its place. Zechariah 12.6. Physically built. Not just spiritual Jerusalem or spiritual Zion or spiritual temple, but a physical one. Now, do I want to continue here? I want to go into a different element of this. <clears throat> so maybe I'll wait until next week to get into it. But let's review the questions at the beginning. Uh, is there a spiritual temple? Absolutely. Is there a physical temple? Did God dwell in houses made with hands? Yes, he has. We've seen evidence of that very clearly stated in Scripture. But they were only types and pictures of that which is to be eternal. So he did dwell in them, but his dwelling place is the universe. It's not limited. So what he's saying is, his summer home is not his real home. I will come and dwell part-time in the tabernacle, in Solomon's temple, in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's temple, his glory came there. The physical temple at the end, he says, I'm going to come and dwell with my remnant people and the two witnesses in the midst of them in the physical temple that you build. So throughout the history of mankind, God has dwelt in temples made by hands at times. Does that mean that his main dwelling place in the heavens was abandoned? No. The Father has been there all along. But Christ has come back and forth, and he's spent time, and his glory has filled various physical edifices made by men. So what Paul and Luke 
are saying is that anything you build here is nothing by comparison to what God has done. So his overall dwelling is the universe, not a temple made by hands. It has to have that meaning, otherwise it's a total contradiction. So does there have to be a physical temple built? Yes, there does. Why are we not now doing it, is a question that was posed to me recently. Why aren't you doing it if it has to be done? Let's address that next week, because there are quite a few things that have to occur before that can be done. And I think we need to understand that and the timing of it in order to grasp uh, the meaning and the purpose of a physical temple. I mean, it's easy to see the purpose of a spiritual temple. For God to come and dwell in our minds and in our hearts and to build his character within us uh, so that we can someday be changed to spirit and dwell in his holy Jerusalem at his temple in the future. That is, without question, far more important. Then, if that is the important temple that is to be built, by far, why do we then need a physical temple at all? We need to face that question and answer it. Because if it is to be done, there has to be a purpose and a reason for it. And it doesn't have to do with your salvation and mine. There's another reason, or reasons for it. So we'll explore that next week and find some answers in God's Word.